for as long as there are those willing and able to use war, those that prefer a different path have always to prepare and think about war. They need to be prepared that sometimes war will be necessary to preserve the peace and war will be necessary to deter the aggressors. The US is in this kind of paradoxical position where it is a great power experiencing manifest destiny and wanting to do things, but at the same time has bound itself to these institutions, rules and norms that it doesn't want to fully move away from. You know, in the West, we made the mistake of tarnishing the package that we were offering and delegitimizing it, both through economic crises and the excesses of neoliberalism and through violating our own rules. Hello again, and welcome to part two of my conversation with Alex Bellamy. We'll be picking up where we left off in part one. So if you haven't listened to that yet, I suggest you go back and do that first, as some discussions in part two might otherwise seem out of context. In this part, we'll be exploring whether humans are wired for violence, how states can actively reduce the likelihood of war, the paradox of US hegemony, the perpetual tension between interests and values, the role of the military-industrial complex and issues with the global arms trade, the role of IHL, implementing laws we already have to promote peace, as well as the ongoing rivalry between competing visions on how the world should be organised. Finally, if you're getting value out of the show, please consider becoming a patron of The Voices of War at patreon.com forward slash The Voices of War. Thank you. What all this comes down to is, the, is, is our groupishness or our need to group as an animal. And I think oftentimes we forget that humans are merely animals. And then while we're endowed with this powerful thing between our ears that gives us voice and reason or seemingly reason, war is an expression of our need to to group but it's not inevitable right and this is something you talk about quite well that despite all of this evolutionary pressure in many ways for you know our need to feel safe in our in our social groups to secure resources food water shelter but we are not necessarily biologically wired for violence what are some of those arguments against the view that uh, yes humans will always fight yeah well the, i mean the critical argument against it is that we have equally this capacity for cooperation. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, war in a sense is an outgrowth of not biological aggression, but rather a capacity for cooperation. I mean, participating mm. in war makes no sense from the point of view of pure biological aggression. And how we can prove this, that we have this cooperative instinct, you know, there's lots of, you can look at it historically. There, there is a kind of a game that game theorists like to play called the prisoner's dilemma where basically two people and they've both been imprisoned on charge of them robbing something mm-hmm. and basically if you both cooperate you can't communicate with each other but mm-hmm. if you both cooperate you'll be let off but if you stay silent but the other person dobs you in you're going to get the worst outcome mm-hmm. uh, whereas if you dob the other person in you'll get a, a light you what yeah. happens when you play the game is people dob each other in even though it's rationally not in their best interest, they fear the defection of the other one more. Interestingly, though, it's the same two people not looking at each other, keep them in different rooms. Mm-hmm. But if you play the same game over and over and over and over again, what you find is that over time they learn to cooperate. Mm. So even without communicating, just by reading the patterns of the outcomes, mm. they learn. So by the time they've done it 10,000 times, 
they're cooperating every time. Hmm. And this shows us that, you know, the ability for kind of social learning to learn the best, most optimal outcome is cooperation. Now, humans have both capacities in them for cooperation and aggression. And there's, of course, very good biological reasons why we have aggression. Firstly, there's our, there's our common ancestors. Uh, you know, we come equally from the aggressive chimps and the uh, peacemaking uh, bonobos. Mm, mm-hmm. But also, of course, learnt in evolution. You know, if adults don't have an aggressive instinct, they wouldn't protect their young from saber-toothed cats and mm-hmm. the species wouldn't survive. So our hardwiring has both this aggressive element and this cooperative element. So they're in tension with each other. It's not determined one way or mm. the other. Moving beyond that, then we look at, well, what does political life look like? Is it the case that when we get into political communities, then it's inevitably violent. And again, if you pick up kind of any kind of you know, history of the world, you're going to have a fairly depressing, it's going to be kind of <laughs> this war followed by that war followed by this war. Yeah. Because that's how we structure our historical narrative. We structure it around the exciting stuff that happens. And, you know, kings leading armies into battle is more exciting than nothing very much happened. For mm. this year. The handshakes and, uh, yeah, 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 and trade. But if you fill in all the blanks, what you find is there are far more years where wars don't happen mm. than where they do. Mm. And you find whole time, you find huge time periods where war is, is rare. Mm. So you can, you can take different parts of the world for time periods sometimes of hundreds of years. And an example that I, I talk about in the book is, is Pax Romana. Now mm-hmm. you've got this beautiful paradox. Is that during the heyday of Pax Romana, Rome is constantly fighting wars on its borders. Mm. But if you live in a Roman province, if you live in, in Iberia or in Provence or in Italy, there's a, two or three hundred years where you're not going to experience war. Mm. It's Life is good. That happens mm. over there. And you can find pockets of that through history, which mm. suggests, again, we, that you have this propensity that war isn't always inevitable now the flip side is of course all of these things break down you know so the phoenicians a group that i I like talking about a lot same civilization in the most violent and bloody part of the world in the middle east at one of the most violent and bloody times but they never had an army Mm. sure they built ships for the greeks and they played off different empires but but they never had an army which is kind of remarkable Mm. but even then after a few hundred years when alexander arrived at the gates the Phoenicians are game over. Are mm. And that's the kind of the fly in the ointment, if you like. That's, that's why you can't go full hippie, let's say. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because for as long as there are those willing and able to use war, those that prefer a different path have always to prepare and think about war. They need to mm. be prepared that sometimes war will be necessary to preserve the peace and war will be necessary to deter the aggressors and given that there have always been those and that war is contagious Mm. that's why thinking about peace also requires thinking about war in a fairly hard-headed way yeah 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 and 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 rational in the sense that without kind of quoting too much but you know if you want peace prepare to war which i which i'm not exactly a huge fan of that quote because it does imply a lot more a lot more militarization than i think you intend Or, or it's a fine line because at which point do you maintain a military for defensive purposes. If you behave as if war is always going to be inevitable, 
yeah. well, then it becomes inevitable because you're acting and assuming and, and you're sending out signals. So it's the, it's the crucial question is, is how do some states and societies and groups of states and societies move from one to the other? So again, mm. it comes back to the European Union example as, as a classic example of how, you know, look at the relationship between France and Germany. Yeah. How does that, how does that transition? And it's conscious. It's mm. deliberate. You know, when they're setting up the coal and steel community, mm. it's not just because they want to share coal and steel. It's with a broader purpose in mind. Similarly, in ASEAN, when ASEAN is created in Southeast Asia, it's a very different sort of model to the European Union. Mm-hmm. But the end goal is the same. It's we're a bunch of new fragile states, each with lots of insurgencies and lots of problems at home. Let's make sure that we don't have wars between us by having really strong rules around sovereignty and non-interference to allow us to concentrate on building that Leviathan at home, not always in the most liberal human rights loving way. Absolutely. Yeah. But the effect of that is to reduce the incidence of war and to allow that state building and nation building process. But it's a conscious decision yeah. that political leaders are taking to go down one path rather than another. And of course, it's not a linear think history is full of projects that start yeah and then hit rocks and reverse or fall apart completely so to to what extent is that then a uh, a feature of less powerful states or or you know medium power states rather than superpower or superpowers because again to talk to the you know kind of the providence piece the powerful ought to have their power because by god they deserve it and, you know, we can, you know, here we can take China, we can take Russia, we can take the US, you know, we can take Turkey even now uh, with, with Erdogan, what he's trying to do, or, or Iran, or any any nation that espouses some kind of global influence, dominance, sphere of influence, call it whatever you will, because it really, it strikes me that, you know, peace is negotiated. And even if we talk about the the, the articles of the uh, of the aggression, I mean, the countries that have signed, and I had, I had the figures, I think it was, uh, I think it was 39 countries that have signed. Uh, for it, but none of the uh, none of the really big players uh, had signed on, uh, which again goes to show that it's you know the the less powerful nations that talk about peace, but the kind of really super powerful the ones that want to be super powerful talk about war. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. So I, th- I mean, I think where we are right now, and it's very clear in Europe, but I think you can see it more globally as well, is a struggle between two visions of how world politics ought to be organized. And we might call it, in a European context, we might call it on the one hand, a, a Helsinki vision mm. based on the you know, OSCE principles of sovereignty, human rights, democracy. States are entitled to make their own way. They should respect human rights. They can make alliances and form join organizations with whoever they like. It's a, essentially a mm. liberal version. So you've got that model. And then you've got Yalta. Hmm. And the Yalta model is the world should be carved up into spheres of influence where great powers determine what happens in their sphere. And clearly in Europe right now, there's a struggle between the, those two visions, between you know, Russia that has a very much a Yalta vision. And it's obviously hyper under Putin, but it's not just Putin. Mm-hmm. It was there to a lesser extent, but there with Yeltsin, it was obviously there before. Mm-hmm. You see something not dissimilar with Chinese foreign policy. It's not quite as as fully developed yet or mm. aggressive yet, but it's there. If you look at Chinese thinking on Taiwan, on South China Sea, on its relations in what it 
it's near abroad in Southeast Asia, similar sorts of mm-hmm. relations. Some would say that you see something similar in the way that the US relates to the Caribbean, mm-hmm. uh, certainly during the Cold War, but you've got a Cold War frame there to put on. So you've got a competition between these two visions of world politics, and it's not clear which vision is going to play out. Now, I would, I would, you know, we've been kind of critical of the Americans, uh, but let's be for a moment less critical of the mm, Americans. Yeah, yeah. And, and I didn't mean to. I, I, yeah, no, I agree. I think I was too. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but the U.S. is different from the others in that the U.S. after 1945 actually bound itself to common institutions. Mm-hmm. Mm. And again, this is, I think, one of the things that Russia doesn't, Putin doesn't quite understand about the relationship, say, between the U.S. and NATO. Yes, the U.S. is the predominant member of NATO, but the U.S. doesn't dictate NATO policy. It has one vote, which is the same number of votes as Croatia has. Mm. Um, but does it have the same power as Croatia? Well... More influence. Obviously, it has more informal influence, but it can't control what NATO does. It can influence and shape. But just thinking about power, you know, if France and Germany decide to take a particular course, they can mm. prevent the US. Take. So, for example, the US wasn't able to get NATO involved for the war in Iraq mm. Mm. because several NATO members didn't agree with that. Mm. If you look at Russian security institutions, it's, it's quite different. The idea that Moscow wouldn't get its way in the CSTO or the Eurasian mm, Union. Mm-hmm. It's an anathema. Of course, it's going to get. Also, when you look at global institutions, I mean, the, the US was crucial mm. in forging the UN system, forging the Bretton Woods system. And on the one hand, that creates a degree of institutional power for the US. The US is a permanent member of the UN Security Council. Mm, mm. But it also binds the US so that those very, for example, if you think of the Iraq war, I've read articles condemning what the US was doing, saying it was immoral and illegal. But the bases on which I was saying it was illegal were the very treaties, conventions, and charters that the US itself yeah. had bound itself to. So the US is in this kind of paradoxical position where it is a great power experiencing manifest destiny and wanting to do things but at the same time has bound itself to these institutions, rules, and norms that it doesn't want to fully move away from. Mm. And again, you know, we talk about US politics. You know, it bears remembering that for eight years, we had a president who voted against invading Iraq. The, mm. you know, the, the wheel, in a sense, in the US turned mm. full swing on, on Iraq and, and that decision of, on whether to intervene. Similarly, in the UK, you know, governments were... Mm. driven out of power because of primarily what was happening in Iraq. Yeah. So, yeah, so I think you have this this struggle between these two visions of what world order should be. Mm. And I think a couple of things have happened in the last few years. Firstly, I think the idea of spheres of influence and rising powers has lost some of its shine. Mm -hmm. Although there are a lot of states in the UN who don't want to come out and condemn Russia, there's mm-hmm. you know, about 70 or 80, they're also not supporting Russia. Not even China is coming out and saying, hey, you know what, we think they're doing the right thing. Also, this idea of that the world policy is going to pivot to these regional powers has kind of fallen over. Russia, it turns out, isn't the power we all thought it was going to be. Brazil has not turned out to be the economic powerhouse people thought it was going to be. South Africa, too, is is not how things looked a few years ago. So I think 
although it's still a contested space, recent events have, have, have meant that sort of Yalta vision of the world has lost some of its gloss. Also, in, in, in this part of the world, as China becomes more assertive, so responses to China have become more assertive. So opinion has shifted. So it's not just in this part of the world, it's not just the usual suspects like Australia and Japan and mm. South Korea that are worried about China now. It's Vietnam. Yeah, where you have Vietnam looking to the US as its principal security partner, mm. you know something seismic is happening. Mm. India, you know, the country that's about to become the most populous country in the world, the India-China relationship is is not a friendly and not a clear one. So I think there are opportunities for reinvigorating the, the sort of Helsinki vision of the world, Yeah, but it's in trouble. COVID, the global financial crisis, also, the U.S. war on terror took the shine off liberal international order. I mean, we and credibility in many ways, right? Totally, totally. Yeah, you can't, on the one hand, say we're in favour of rules-based international order and then go and violate those mm. four rules in the most obvious and blatant way without expecting people then to question whether or not you yeah. do support a rule but, Well, I mean, w- wouldn't that rules-based order really, by the opponents of it, be interpreted as the American rule, you know, the Pax Americana, which is basically what we could be saying here as well. I mean, it, the, the world has enjoyed peace, certainly during Cold War and then post-Cold War, the kind of known as the peace dividend, right, which was, you know, the US was the global hegemon. Uh, and as it started stepping away from it or, or missteps like Iraq, which time and time again pops up in my discussions as a, as a pivotal moment where it kind of went against the very rules that it sought to establish, which then undermined it and then allowed its opponents or those who have a different worldview uh, who didn't enjoy the the benefit of the Pax Americana perhaps as much as other nations did, it gives them a, a you know a moral leveler, right, where they can say, well, hold on a minute, you're being hypocritical, uh, US and broadly the West. So so how do we come back from that? Because that's a you know that's a really interesting one because it goes into the argument, this entire debate about interest versus values, which again is a topic that keeps popping up time and time again in my discussions, as nation states, we pursue national interests, but we espouse on the global domain, but also in even in our militaries, we live by certain values. You know, the Australian Defence Force has certain values that we espouse, but our mission as the Defence Force is to protect Australia and Australian interests, right? So there's, there's this constant, in my view at least, there's a constant clash or, or there's a chance for a clash if those two diverge. When we, as I mean, Australia support the war in Iraq, which we did, goes, in my view, against our values or our global values. But it was in our interest, it was in our national interest to wave the flag and go with our key pillar of security, the United States. You know, how do you think about these things? <laughs> Great. So, just on the on the Pax Americana again, I think what's unique, uh, different about Pax Americana is that it was a conscious goal of institutionalizing and globalizing Pax Americana. So it yeah. wasn't simply that the US was looking to impose its will on the rest of the world. I think that's an important point, the institution piece. So, and please take the time to elaborate on that because I think that's a really important point. And it goes to what we talked about earlier in nation states as well. So yeah. 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 So you, we have the U. for example, we have the UN order. So the US vision for the post-war world, post-Second World War world, was a world governed by the United Nations. And that UN order wasn't something just dreamed up by the Americans and imposed on the rest, but something negotiated. And of course, one of the full entry point partners in that was the Soviet Union. Mm. So Mm. yes, it's true that this is pre-decolonization. 
So most post-colonial states are, are not yet full full partners. Some were, again, interestingly in our histories, we tend to write out the fact that Latin American states were absolutely critical in the negotiations. Mm, mm. But you have a negotiation between the US and the Soviet Union. And the charter that comes out of that is a compromise between those two. And so you've always, since 45, had the tethering of US power to these common institutions that, that Washington can't control. And again, that's been a core tension of US foreign policies well, all the way back to 1945 is this troubled relationship between the US and the UN because the US can't control it. And after decolonization, the US lost totally lost control of the General Assembly, for example, and the agenda ran away from the Americans. And even coming to where we started with RTP, just to give mm. you an example, mm. the one state that almost scuppered the negotiations at the last minute on R2P was the United States. Huh. It was John Bolton. So it was George W. Bush at the time. Okay. Bolton was the ambassador. Mm. And he saw, what, when he arrived as ambassador, he saw the, one of the final drafts and basically said, there is no way on earth we are accepting this responsibility to go and protect other people from atrocities. That is just not going to happen at all. And at that point, of course, all the other objections dropped into the whole thing almost collapsed. And it took a, a, a clever sleight of hand by the Americans and getting Condoleezza Rice to overrule John Bolton and stitch it all back together again. Yeah, wow. And then that comes in a negotiation where one of the key leads in the negotiation process is Rwanda. Mm. The country that introduces the whole thing to the General Assembly is Guatemala. And an interesting fun fact about RTP. So RTP refers to these atrocity crimes, genocide war crimes, crimes against humanity, ethnic cleansing. Now, ethnic cleansing stands out because it's not a class of atrocity crimes. So what's it doing in there? It was added in at the request of Pakistan, who wanted it in because of their activism on Bosnia. And they said, well, because RTP is a response to Bosnia and the UN failed abysmally on Bosnia, mm. it is essential that ethnic cleansing be added in. So again, wow. with our mental maps, when we think of things like RTP and we think, oh, this is a you know, Western concept, we iron out the fact that some of the terms of it were actually introduced by states from outside the West. And that's one of the kind of the interesting things about the UN order is that it took on a life of its own. The US wasn't able to control every aspect of it. And so you've had this tension always in, in, in US-UN relations. Mm, mm, On mm. the national interest, it's a really good point. The question, and this is where I you know, become all kind of academic and <laughs> What is a national interest? A national interest is a combination of basic material stuff, but really most countries have very few of those. Very few actually busted on material interest. What's the other side of national interest? It's values. We can't know what we want unless we know who we are, what our normative and moral values are, what are the sorts of things we want to achieve in the world. And those are things of value. So values are not separate from interests. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Values shape interests. And the national interest, within democracy, the national interest and what is the national interest is precisely the thing that national elections are about. Mm. What you get in national elections are different political actors offering different visions of what we think the national state of play is, what the national interest is, and what should be done. So a classic example, you mentioned Iraq there. And you're right. The argument from the government at the time was that we have to support, you know, there's all sorts of things to do with Saddam 
that we have to do. Mm-hmm. But also this relationship with the US is absolutely fundamental to our security. Therefore, we have to join the invasion. Now, the ALP's position at that time was we will support the invasion if it's authorized by the UN. So the ALP, in a sense, accepted some of the points about Saddam, but said our national interest is better served by supporting a UN system, the UN order, mm. Mm-hmm. And by necessarily following the US into every war that the US wants to, to follow into. So you have two different accounts mm. in that instance of what the national interest is. But there's a massive difference between those, right? In, 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 in living our values in many ways as well. Absolutely. On, on one hand, you're acknowledging that, you know, we've signed up to this thing called the UN and uh, UN Charter. And you're saying, okay, if there's a collective agreement consensus that we ought to act that's then passed through Security Council, which is the body authorised to enact violence on behalf of the world, basically, sure, then that seems to be then morally sound. But if we all of a sudden say, well, hold on, yes, we accept that. However, in this circumstance, out of our own national interest, we're going to go with the with the hegemon who's ultimately really stepping on their own toes here uh, and is going into something that's you know, not moral or legal, that's where you start going, okay, well, well, are we then losing, are we ourselves losing credibility? And what does that mean to our political identity, yeah. to our real attachment to our values, if we're happy to, in a way, discard them over national interests, right? That's right. Absolutely. And so interests aren't these sort of fixed Mm. Fixed things that kind of live up in the ether. Mm. They're shaped by values and also by political judgment. Yeah. You know, what, what to claim something as an interest, as a national interest is a, is a political claim. And either your claim is accepted mm-hmm. and so allows you to do certain things or it's rejected. I mean, a really, an even sharper example would be looking at, um, you know, Georgia in 2007-8. So what mm. does Georgia want? Georgia wants to join NATO. Hmm. What does Georgia have to do to join NATO? It has to deploy the best of its army in Iraq so that when Russia invades Georgia, where's the best of Georgia's army? Well, it's not defending <laughs> Georgia. It's sitting <laughs> sitting in Iraq. It's hmm. a judgment about what was in the national interest um, that proved to be um, incorrect. So, yeah, I think absolutely. I think we need to push past this idea of values and interests being kind of binary hmm. and understand that one shapes the other and that interests are very much shaped by values, by history, by context, and also mostly by political judgment. It's a political judgment where you think your interest lies, a judgment that will often be resolved by by history. (laughs) History will determine, but it's a history that you can't know at the time and a history that will also be shaped Mm. by the judgments that you make. Yeah. And just one other question on this topic because I feel like you're very well placed to, to tackle it. You know, it kind of broadly falls under this idea of, you know, the military industrial complex. And because we do know that war and national defense is a lucrative business. I mean, many do profit. We we just have to look at the top five arms exporters uh, since the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, You know, some of their shares have gone up 8%, others 10, etc. I mean, war war is good business. Do you think it's undeniable to say that military-industrial complex has no influence, that the lobby groups don't have an influence on our national interests, and that they, in some cases, potentially even override our values. 
Yeah, that's a really good question. So I, I would confess to being a, a, a military industrial complex skeptic. Okay, good. Then, then, that. then you're definitely the right person to, uh, to answer this question. <laughs> so I, clearly there are relationships of influence and interest. I don't know many cases though where the influence is so great that it's prompted a government or non-state armed groups to do things that they wouldn't ordinarily have wanted to do anyway. Mm-hmm. And clearly, some businesses profit from war, but it's also clearly also the case that over time, war has become less and less profitable for states. Mm-hmm. Uh, unless you're in a situation where the state is so corrupted that its leaders would privilege business interests over the interests of their own state, I'm not sure that the, the economic force of the military-industrial complex would drive state policy. Where I think there is an issue is the question of the ease with which different actors can acquire arms and in the acquiring of arms makes opportunities available to them for using force to achieve their political goals. So those goals will probably already exist. But the easier it is for them to require arms, the more plausible it becomes mm-hmm. that they could pursue their objectives by, by the use of force. Whereas the opposite would be the case. So I, I mm. do think there is, you know, in any scheme for world peace, a significant role to be played in thinking about arms transfers. Mm-hmm. And on this, you know, I, I put, put in the book that I, I think the arms trade treaty provides really good bare bones for thinking about that in terms of a legal obligation that says that you can't sell arms to states that you think would be likely to use them for aggression or to commit atrocity crimes. Mm-hmm. Now, there's all yeah. sorts of, you know, it's, yeah. the current law is very, very woolly and there's lots of avenues out of it. But I think you've got there a basis to start thinking about how you, how you control that more. Mm-hmm. But I also think that we shouldn't, over-exaggerate the effects that that would have. So I think if you think of Western war, for example, I don't think there's much relationship at all between the arms industry and Western way of war, mm-hmm. Western proclivity for war. It may be that the development of more advanced technology has lowered our pain threshold, so we think we can wage war painlessly to ourselves by using drones, you know, UAVs yeah, and the rest of yeah. it. That may be something. I know because Samuel Moyne's written yeah. this book about. I was just going to say that's why I was. I've interviewed Samuel Moyne on that thesis uh, on that yeah. book, uh, Humane. Yeah. Yes, I mean that's a really important, really mm. compelling book. I mean, I I think it falls down a little on the. Mm. Kind of, I don't think it can demonstrate a causal effect, and I, I think particularly in relation to international humanitarian law, I'd say his argument that by promoting law, we make war appear more humane, and that makes it look more legitimate. Mm-hmm. I think it falls down. If you look at the reason why wars in Iraq and Afghanistan became less legitimate in the West, it wasn't because we were killing Iraqis and Afghans. It was because our own service personnel were being killed and wounded. Mm-hmm. So if you walk away from IHL or you question IHL, what you potentially do is make the situation worse because a great power like the US, imagine a world without IHL. Mm-hmm. So. Let's put mental experiment yeah. just yeah. doesn't exist. The US can plausibly achieve complete victory in Afghanistan without sacrificing any loss of life at all to itself by simply covering all of Afghanistan in flame from above. 
Mm-hmm. And in a world without IHL or those norms, mm-hmm. nobody would say that's the wrong thing. It would be like Roman Carthage. In that scenario, I think, rather than the powerful becoming more inhibited to use war, we actually start saying, hey, this is, this is okay, isn't it? We can mm. achieve what we want with no casualties to ourselves. It becomes more risk-free than what we have now. So I think the logic, when you start to challenge things like IHL, the danger is that you undermine those things that inhibit the powerful. And if you undermine those things that inhibit the powerful, the powerful can always achieve what they want by escalating because they've got the material power to do so. If you take mm. away those normative restraints, you encourage them to escalate. And I think I, I doubt whether populations would be so moved by atrocities committed by their own sides in a successful war that they would force their governments to kind of back down. Mm. And I think Russia is a case in point. I think right now, if Putin achieved a decisive victory by killing every man, woman, and child in Ukraine, I think a large proportion of the Russian population would celebrate that fact. Mm, mm, mm. But also, I mean, you know, Russia is taking so many casualties, uh, you know, so many body bags are coming home, but that also is not having the desired effect of diminishing their want to prosecute the war. No, this comes back to what we were talking about with Mm. just wars where we kind of started, because, you know, in every war, combatants think theirs is the just side yeah. you know you don't fight a war if you don't think that what you're doing is yeah. right um yeah I, and you'll I, I, swallow and you'll swallow sufficient sufficient lies to believe that because that's again absolutely. it's in your interest yeah, and, your, and your right social you, and sometimes the more casualties you take the more right you think it is and mm. you can't then and it's a classic with the, with the first world war for example that one of the reasons why by 1917 you couldn't have a negotiated end mm was because so much had been sacrificed. Mm. The idea that you might compromise with the other side would not have been sold. No democratic people. Again, again, Ukraine is a real classic. When mm. we talk about land for peace, for example, you say yeah, this is the rational result for Ukraine. You look at what Ukrainians say, and 70, 80% say, no, 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 we're, gonna, we're not going to trade away our land. We're going to keep fighting. We're going to take the cost in order to uh, get it all back. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. Uh, I'm conscious of the time, Alex, but I do have to ask you one final question, and that's the way you end the book. And I guess it is quite hopeful in the way you end the book, because you do talk about preliminary or definitive articles for world peace. And in many ways, you actually firstly say that we have all the ingredients for it already, but then you give some suggestions. Now, conscious that I wouldn't expect you to, to, to go through all of them, but maybe some of the key ones that you would identify as really, really necessary for us to really begin this kind of reinvented idea of, of the possibility of world peace. Yeah, thanks. So, yeah, so the yeah the structure of the preliminary and the definitive article is obviously stolen from Immanuel Kant. So it's, it's kind of an artifice that I, uh, just to sort of narrow down the discussion. And, and mm-hmm. But the, the logic with what I identified as, as my preliminary articles is, as you say, these are all things that we already have. So they're not kind of figments of my mm. overactive imagination or, or the things that already exist. And, and the argument being that if we strove to make those things work better, mm. you're not going to get all the way to lasting world peace, but you are certainly going to make the world uh, more peaceful. And those are things like, you know, we have international law. We don't need more laws. Maybe something around AI and, uh, mm-hmm. and fellow robots. We do need more laws. The technology is. But on the core things, we have enough laws. Things that are morally wrong or that cause disorder are already unlawful. Mm. What we need 
is more compliance with those laws. And so the, the second, so the first thing is abiding by, even when it's difficult to do so, even when you might judge that in this case, your interests may require breaking the law. When you do that, you undermine the whole idea of a legal order and others mm. will, will, will do that more. The second thing is, is yeah, making sure that those laws are implemented by contributing to the institutions that are there to enforce and uphold the law. So mm, mm, mm. contributing to the UN, sending peacekeeping. We know peacekeeping works for all of its problems. We know it works, and we know that the better it's done, the more it works. Yeah. So contribute, you know, pay, pay the bills, send the troops, work with those institutions and really kind of explore all their potential. Mm. The third one we've already talked about, which is to do with the arms trade, is take the arms trade treaty, fill in the gaps and implement it. Make sure that we're not arming states and non-state armed groups who are likely to use it for aggression or well, like yeah. atrocities with it. Well, stick to our values, not our interests, right? Don't sell to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, mm. totally. Mm. Um, the fourth would be, you know, we talked earlier about the European Union, would be building those security communities. Mm. Mm. Working at regional level to build communities of countries that are basically in their relations with each other are taking war off the table. So it's not just that they don't fight war with each other. It's not just that they have some common regional institution. Mm. War becomes unthinkable. Like, it's yeah. just not something we're planning or preparing for. So, you know, Australia and New Zealand is a security mm. community, mm. France and mm-hmm. Germany. And it's more possible often at the regional level because you have those kind of it's places. closer, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And more dense ties, yeah. 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 The fifth um, is, is this idea of a right of hospitality, which is taken from Kant, but it's basically opening up trade and movement, which is something that's not been possible during COVID. Mm. <laughs> it's also something that has this dark side because, you know, again, Ukraine shows uh, sometimes the more ties you have, the more sources of vulnerability you have. We've also got this whole concept now of, you know, gray area warfare, hybrid war, which is all about taking advantage of those increased connections. Mm. Mm. Of course, mm. wherever you've got connections, you've, always got those vulnerabilities. The overall trends are clear. That's the first thing. You will, In any kind of macro-historical trends, you're going to find blips and you're going to find vulnerabilities. Yeah. The overall yeah. trends are clear. But the other thing is, even if you think about hybrid, hybrid wars and grey area wars, what's also happening is that those relationships are often deterring traditional wars. Mm. Mm. If you're doing cyber wars or you're using your economic levers, you're maybe doing that instead of sending tanks and missiles because you're being deterred because you're going to pay a price as well mm. because you can't realize the value of your element of the supply chain yeah. uh, without the other side. Now, and you, you also are, don't know what the other side's got still in store, right? You also absolutely. don't know if you, you know, if you push the button, the red button, whether it's going to go bang or not, uh, you know, whether they've hacked yeah. it or something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, so now, you're always going to have political actors yeah. who don't have the same sort mm. of means and rationality. Mm. So I would say. Um, you know, Vladimir Putin has been on his own interesting journey where he probably did at the start, but now he's operating with a very different sort of, of rationality. Mm, mm, mm. Um, and you're always going to have that because, you know, politics means having lots of different people and communities with different senses of rationality. But, mm. but still, I think the more you can open borders to trade, the flow of ideas, the flow of people, the greater the dampening effect is going to be, especially if you're doing it alongside the other things as well. And then the sixth is, and you've already mentioned it with the crime of aggression, is, is criminal accountability. Nothing focuses the mind more than the idea that you might end up in the dock 
or, mm. or mm. in prison. And it's not just that people would fear the actual prison sentence. You know, a prison in the Netherlands isn't the worst, mm. Mm. worst mm. thing if you've, if you've come from the yeah. battlefields of Bosnia. It's yeah. not such a great hardship. Yeah, yeah. But it's the it's the stigma. It's the mm. it's the sense that you are actually a criminal. You are shunned. You are you're not a national hero. Now, with criminal accountability, so there's lots of studies at the moment saying, well, you know, ICTY, ICC doesn't deter. There's no evidence that it deters. But that's because the likelihood of prosecution is still mm. so remote that most perpetrators going into most wars assume they, A, they're going to win, and B, they're never going to get prosecuted. So, of yeah. course, there's going to be no... And difference. especially if they're on the winning side. Totally. Right. Because that's, yeah. we have to face that fact. Again, the interest. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is, you know, the, the big obstacle. Mm, mm, um, yeah. But if you can work on extending criminal accountability, you know, ICC is, is, is one avenue, but there are others like you know, using domestic jurisdiction mm, mm-hmm. to increase that probability so that in future generations, there is an expectation that if I launch an aggressive war or if I commit or order atrocities, I'm going to be prosecuted. Hmm. That is going to have a, it's not going to stop it entirely. People will yeah. still make, but it will reduce the number of circumstances in which. Exactly. It's, it, it's, it's going to be a barrier. It's going to be a barrier to conflict, right? It's one of the, it's what we talked about from right from the start. It's, it's getting the conditions to a place where we disincentivize war. Right now, our poor incentives or the fact that you can wage war, you know, especially if you win. So that is a greater incentive to win and to galvanize the national effort to win. Uh, you know, from a leader's perspective, then you can pretty much do what you like with relative impunity, and, and that's yeah. just that's just a fact. It's not a there's no politics in that. It's just the reality of it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So those so yeah, so those are the, are the mm. six preliminary mm. things that all all are based on things that already exist. Mm. And say, you know, if if states committed more resources and more political support to achieving those things, mm. that in itself would make a would make a difference. Yeah. But of course, you know, we are in an environment where, where most trends are moving in the wrong direction. Yeah. And I guess that's perhaps my last question to you. You do make a, a reference to Christopher Clark's incredible book, Sleepwalkers, uh, you know, that details how the world kind of blindly walked into World War One, or the kind of the cascading effects of, you know, that one shot by Gavrilo Princip, uh, you know, and then the, the domino effect that it's had. Given your last comment, are we sleepwalking again? <laughs> I think we may have sleepwalked in the opposite direction. That is, I think the end of the Cold War made a lot of us think that certain things were inevitable. Mm. Mm-hmm. The inevitable march of democracy. Mm. That, end of history, right? Yeah. 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 That, and I, and I would include myself in this. With my work on RTP, I thought that if you could make the right arguments, you could make the right moral claims, you could find the shared values that you could build new consensuses and new agreements. And I think we underplayed uh, and we assumed that you could kind of continue making this incremental progress. But then history turns out it doesn't play out like that. Mm. And so we underestimated the internal tensions within liberalism itself. So we talked already about the war on terror and how mm. that mm. undermined Western credibility. Also, I think Global financial crisis has also undermined the attractiveness of the package being offered mm. by the West. Mm, mm, mm. At the same time, the rise of China has increased the attractiveness of authoritarian capitalism that says, hey, look, we've solved the problem of development just like the West did. 
and we can do it without human rights, without the messiness of democracy, much more orderly. So that's become a a, a different vision. Mm-hmm. And then you've also, of course, got you know Russia. <laughs> Uh, and Putin's very different view of Russian exceptionalism and, and uh, this challenge to the mm. West. Mm, mm, mm. So I, I think it's taken us too long to work out that we were sleepwalking in the wrong mm. direction. I, I think obviously the West underwent corrections after Iraq eventually, you know, the pivot to, to shift to Obama was, mm. was, was a correction to shift in Western opinion about what happened in Iraq. And what was going on um, mm. in Afghanistan was a was a pivot, but mm. some of the damage has been done, and that kind of sheen has been taken away. But then there was a a number of years still where we were operating on the same sorts of assumptions mm. that mm. ultimately everyone wants the same sort of thing that trade, international law, cooperation could bring most most around, and it turns out that that's not the case at all. So mm. you know, mm. we, we saw. There's a story, and this is the story of, of, of the book I'm writing at the moment on Putin. <laughs> there is a story and there's mm. a progression that I, not until I think Crimea in 2014, and even then a lot of Western governments still didn't get it, that this wasn't something that appeared out of nowhere. This was something that goes back to Georgia 2008, Chechnya mm. 2000, 2006. But there's a narrative and a, and a logic that, we took too long to wake up to. Mm. There are ideological challenges offering radically different visions of how the world ought to be organized. Mm. Well, I think we, you know, in the West, we made the mistake of tarnishing the package that we were offering and delegitimizing it, both through economic crises and the excesses of neoliberalism mm. and through violating our own rules, yeah. which has left us in a worse position to deal with now what are these big new challenges to the whole order, one coming from Russia and a bigger one coming from China. And China is obviously the larger one in the future. And one mm. of the we talked about interests earlier. I mean mm. looking at the long term, one of the one of the consequences of what where Putin is taking Russia is that he's making Russia a vassal of China. Mm. In the long mm. run, Russia is going to become the junior partner of China and is going to struggle to try to balance China by also engaging um with, with yeah. the West. Question and this, you say mentioned the end of history, and so, so I'm the a very long winded answer with uh, a court. So, you know, Fukuyama, so his book is probably you know the most quoted and least read of books. And Fukuyama wasn't saying that history, history was over, nothing was going to happen. What he was sort of saying is that liberal democracy has solved as probably best we can the problems of politics, all the problems that we've talked about. Fukuyama saying. He can't see a better way of resolving mm. the problems than liberal democracy. Mm, mm. And in that, Putinism isn't a challenge because Putinism is straight old fashioned exceptionalism and authoritarianism. For a while, I would say up to two or three years ago, it looked like China maybe had, it looked mm. like maybe China was offering a different sort of model. The question I think for now is as Xi Jinping becomes more authoritarian, is Xi Jinping tarnishing China's alternative? Is he making actually China mm. just another form of old-fashioned authoritarian that is going to fall into all the same sorts of traps? So is China becoming actually less of a viable political challenge mm. um, to liberal democracy? That's so interesting. Yeah. I don't know the answer, but 
two or three years ago, I would sort of end by saying this is the this is the great rivalry. Mm. Today, there there is there, you know as China becomes more authoritarian, there's this question of well, is it actually an alternative model, mm. or is it is it just old fashioned authoritarianism? And as we look at the chaos in Sri Lanka, partly driven by excessive and inefficient debt to China and you know the the ports and all the rest of it. Mm. You kind of have to ask, well, is the is China going to tarnish also the uh, attractiveness of its own? Of its model? own, yeah. And, That's and so a, interesting. Yeah. Finally, finally, finally. Yeah, please. It's a great recent book by uh, an Oxford academic called Rosemary Foote on China in the UN. And one thing she argued is that China is wanting to become more influential and assertive at the UN. It's using lots of levers to do that. But as it does that. So China will start to require more responsibility for how well the UN does. So China may, for example, offer an alternative to liberal peace building. But if that alternative doesn't prove to be better than liberal peace building, then China's vision is also going to be called into question. Mm. If China can't offer an alternative to the UN's rules on the use of force or how the UN does humanitarian aid, if, if those things don't turn out to be better, if China's not a better peacekeeper, than Sweden, hmm. then the UN's failures are also going to become China's failures in a way that they haven't been before. You know, when we think of Bosnia, we think the UN's failures is Europe's failure or America's failure. But as China becomes more influential, those failures will also become China's hmm. failures, and that will have the effect of constraining China. Well, history repeats itself, huh? Let's let, let's hope that Taiwan doesn't end up being China's uh, Iraq <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in, right. in in that kind of construct, because that's uh, that's bad news for all of us. Uh, on that note, Alex, I, I knew this would be a fascinating conversation, and 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 it's surpassed my wildest expectations. I, I feel like we could go for another couple of hours easily. Uh, so don't be surprised if another invitation is uh, in your inbox, uh, you know, in the future <laughs> for another for another episode. Um, yeah. taking your whole morning. <laughs> no, it's absolutely incredible. And uh, I, I don't want to say, um, given given that this book was born out of you in hospital, I don't want you to go to hospital, but I do want you to, you know, lock yourself up in your in your house uh, for another three weeks. Uh, and I do look forward to reading uh, your your upcoming book and also your your last one on Syria. So uh, thank you so much for your time. It's been it's been an incredible conversation. Thanks very much. Cheers, Matt. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Voices of War. And since you got this far, please take a moment to like and review the show wherever you get your pods. Also, if you're able, please consider showing your support through our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. Thank you, and until the next time.